Hi, this is Debony Morgan, and you're listening to The Spirit of Now, Zeitgeist's podcast to introduce us to new spiritual ideas and new exciting spiritual people. Today, we're talking with our storyteller in residence, master storyteller, Phil Foster. He's going to be sharing a story with us on Friday, January 22nd at 7 p.m. But for right now, I'd like you to get to know Phil and learn a little bit about why we believe storytelling is important. Phil is retired as a professional psychotherapist, founding member, past president, and former chaplain of the Licensed Professional Counselors Association of Georgia. He is also an an ordained minister with the Disciples of Christ and continues his life as a professed ecumenical lay Cistercian of the Monastery of Our Lady of the Holy Spirit in Conyers, where he has served on the ELC Council and as a novice master. His background also includes more than 20 years of experiential study of indigenous spirituality with the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, the Four Winds Society, and the Heart of the Healer Foundation. For four decades, he has presented numerous workshops, trainings, and retreats regionally, nationally, and internationally on topics including spirituality, ceremony, gender, poetry, and the reason we're here today, storytelling. So, Phil, is there anything else about yourself that you would like us to know? I was just going to say, I'd really like to meet that guy. He sounds... Oh, my gosh. He he sounds pretty interesting. (laughs) He is. He's terrific. You know, you you can probably run into him on January the 22nd. (laughs) Yeah, I I would hope so. Yeah, it's always funny when people introduce you with superlatives and whatnot, it's you know, if, if you have any sanity at all, you're like, who, who is that? What, what is that? <laughs> More things for me to let go of, Debony. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, and that's, that, that's my gift to you. And your yeah, gift I to us <laughs> is uh, your amazing ability. So, Phil, my first question for you today, I mean, storytelling, you know, can't be something that is perceived as being silly or childlike. But I don't know. What do you think is important about storytelling? Yeah, it's such a great question because uh, in many ways, it, it, it is a defining characteristic of what it is to be human. Mm. We're, we're the only animal I'm mindful of that actually tells stories, that articulates stories, that makes up narratives, that tells tales. Uh, you know, we, we do some other things that uh, other parts of creation don't seem to do, like most of us have some ability for abstract reasoning. Uh, you know, we pray, we meditate, we do ceremony. Uh, we, we, we create in probably the most uh, prolific way of any creature on the planet. Having said that, I think we're I think we're the only one that tells stories. So there's something just inherent about that ability that's that makes it important. It's an important part of being human. So individually, I think we're we're each obviously telling a story. And then we have our collective stories, right? We have more universal stories like the story of a profession or the story of a nation or the story of a culture. Mm-hmm. So we have, you know, we're infused with stories. 
I think in the dream of the universe that, you know, each of our dreams kind of dances with some larger dream and co-creates a story. There's some unfolding that's going on here. There's some dreaming that's coming true. And we seem to contribute to that, not only in our ability to reflect and to create, but also in our ability to talk about it, to, to articulate it in some way and to make meaning or, or to not make meaning by making meaning, if that makes any meaning. Uh, <laughs> not making meaning is a meaning, right? So, uh, you know, the, our, our, the interaction of life itself and, and the stories that we tell, in particular, the individual stories, seem to be a, a large part of that process. So uh, I think stories persist over time. We, see, we hear a lot of the same stories. And people who spend their lives studying story um, will tell you that there are a lot of cross-cultural themes and stories, uh, various cultures and in times of history will talk about a lot of the same notions. They'll talk about power. They'll talk about uh, life and death. They'll talk about, uh, you know, the virtues, uh, what's virtuous, what's not. Um, so I, there, this, it's a universal phenomenon. Um, I think stories help us, be, being a storyteller and a therapist or retired, uh, at least somewhat from those activities now, um, I, I used to tell a lot of stories actually in therapy. Um, one of the, one of the sort of, technical or techniques or, or, or modalities of archetypal psychotherapy is the telling of stories. How do stories help us frame our individual story and how, do, how does our individual story inform something more universal? Right. Uh, for instance, take being a psychotherapist. Um, there are lots of stories about that. We can start with Freud or even, you know, some of his precursors, Kraft Ebbing and some of these folks, right? We can talk about Dr. Jung and his story. We can talk about, you know, Maslow and his story and Yalom and how they, their telling of their lives, how their contributes to the story that we tell as individual therapists today. Right. Uh, it, one of the best examples I can come up with around that is um, the wonderful work of uh, Dr. Jean Shinoda Bowen. Do you know right. her? Yes. You know? uh -huh. Yes. Do you know her personally? Uh, I have met her, but she probably wouldn't remember me. Yeah, I went to a workshop with her once and I know she wouldn't remember me. But <laughs> she, uh, for those in our audience who don't know, she she wrote uh, a number of wonderful books, but the, the two that really turned me on to the sharing of story as part of therapeutic process with gods and every man mm -hmm. and its companion book, Goddesses in Every Woman. Mm -hmm. And over the years, helping people to identify with a, a particular god or goddess uh, has been so liberating for people because it shifts my, my egoic sense of ownership of that story. And it reminds me that, oh, I'm doing a variant on something that is very much bigger than me. 
that has me in its confidence. It's a very liberating phenomenon for a lot of people. No, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but it certainly is uh, valuable in that regard. You know, I think stories teach us to listen. You mentioned uh, the childlikeness, you know, Um, you know, what it is to be enamored and taken in by a story. Um, It is, it, it really, fine tunes and hones our awareness and and what we hear. And part of what's going on right now in our culture, of course, is, you know, listening and how much listening are we actually, uh, are we actually doing? So I I think storytelling teaches us about listening and hearing and opening to differing, differing perspectives. It's like, it's a little like travel in that regard, you know, when you go to Europe, you understand something different about what it is to be a human. When you go to Africa, you understand something different about being a human. So, and then I, th- I think there's a personal level too. On the and I, I mean personal, not individuals, but the the individual sort of species that we are. You know, the the the, the individual human beings that we are. Our, our brains are sort of constantly spinning out yarns and tales about uh, what's going on. Uh, before we started here, I asked you about your narrative, what story mm-hmm. you were playing about what was going on today. And you, you know, and you shared some of that because that story is going on. And we, it seems to be a natural process that, that we all engage in. And you know, these stories are all filtered by what psychologists call apperception. Mm-hmm. Which you know, is that high, a highfalutin word that just means we're constantly telling ourselves uh, a story based on our past experiences, our sensory input, and very importantly, the narrative we are already playing in our heads, either consciously or unconsciously. So having said all that, I think storytelling helps us get in touch with that more. We begin to sort things out better, and we, we gain a clarity through storytelling that we, we, we wouldn't have otherwise. It's a very powerful an enjoyable way of 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 uh, opening up and yeah. sharing. Yeah, that I think can be transformative. I would I would agree with that one hundred percent. And <clears throat> just sort of touching base with what you had just said is this this um, sometimes people make a differentiation between thought and imagination. Mm hmm. Uh, I've worked with a lot of clients when I say, well, let's do something imaginative. And they say, oh, no, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. And, and yet I'm like, but look at all of the imaginary things you've been telling yourself about everyday occurrence. Like you, you, like you said, there's already a story there. Let's just pull it into the light and take a look at it and, exactly. and examine it. Um, and also the lovely thing about listening to story is it kind of sneaks in the back door in that we get defended in a normal conversation or an exchange of ideas. We hear something and we say, well, that doesn't really match for me. So therefore I'm I'm not going to, I'm not going to listen to it, but a story can kind of, can kind of work around that and, and sneak its way in to cause you to examine or reflect on something that you might not have been open to otherwise. How, how do people uh, 
transform? How do people become? How do they tell their story? Um, is helped when you can get in a context where, where you're, you're at once looking at your story, your personal story, how that story relates to a larger story and how those two things affect each other in a clearer, more objective way. One of the ways of doing that is, is, is exactly what we're going to do on uh, Friday the 22nd. When we gather some folks on Zoom and we tell the story and then we will have some uh, discussion about what's happening, not simply what do we think about it, as important as that might be, but what, what was the experience of the story? Uh, and we can go on and talk about, you know, all kinds of things about creating that space. But I think the point at the moment is that it, it's a total experience. Uh, it, it will involve the body. It involves the teller's body. The teller, you know, has to have some level of engagement with the story or it doesn't come across. It will be flat. It will just be, you know, it, it, it's, it's not effective. Uh, it's not quite the same as acting. <laughs> There's, mm -hmm. It's a little different. It's sort of giving yourself over to the story, which is part of acting, I suppose. But it, but it is performative. It, there is a performance quality to it. And we have to remember that, you know, this, the spirituality of much of the West, at least, you know, grew up in the theater and in and the musical arts. Um, and this was how people transformed. There's, and, and ritual elevates us and storytelling is a kind of a ritual. And it, and it elevates our normal experience to a meta experience where we are able to see the larger themes and so forth. So when you talk about it being, is it cognitive, is it physical? Is it, it imaginal? Is it in our imagination? Is it uh, our affective self, our feeling self? Is it our spiritual self? And the answer, of course, is yes. It's all of the above. It's all of those. It touches all of those places. Yeah. And also something that we hadn't mentioned yet is what is commonly the communal aspect of it. I mean, certainly two people can be together sharing stories, but when we gather together in community to share a story, now we're entering into that same space together. And I think there's something ritualistic about that as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That, that, and I think that's the point. I think that's uh, part of our offerings at Zeitgeist and to gather folks together for uh, educational, experiential, um, and even ceremonial kinds of events. So, uh, this, this fits into really all three. <laughs> that checks those boxes, huh? <laughs> so Phil, another question is, you know, we, we specifically chose our event to go a few days after the presidential inauguration. Mm -hmm. And at the time we chose that, the, the world looked even different than it does now. <laughs> but and why it is- it probably look different then, so. Yeah, I, 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 I feel like it will. What? Why is storytelling important now 
2021. So we're currently engaged in a rather epic storytelling in this country in particular, and really it's a global phenomenon. It's not just an American phenomenon, though we have a particular take on it. And we, we, we continue to struggle, you know, to find our common story as Americans. You hear a lot these days of people saying, you know, well, you know, I'm not like those people or I'm not like those people or that's not what it's about. Or, this is not what it's about. Uh, you know, we're struggling to find, you know, what what it what is it to be, you know, the United States of America, quote unquote, and what all these events uh, mean in terms of of who we are and where we might be going, if anywhere. Yeah. So uh, I, I think in, in, in articulating it as a story we are telling, it's a little like using story in therapy. It's just on a much larger level. It sort of takes the onus off of the individual and says, oh, we're telling a story here together. Now, you know, what? Why are we telling this particular story? Well, we can look back at the stories that we have told before. We might look at them, well, this is always the way we've seen it. Or we might look at those stories from the past with new eyes. And all of which is valuable, I think. I think uh, this is the way the story has always been told is a very valid point. Mm -hmm. This is the way we tell the story. And knowing also that it's just as valid to say, well, the story is always changing. The story is never told quite the same way twice. Even with people who very much may agree on what the basis of the story is. And it's, it's a little, well, it's exactly like quantum physics. It is mm -hmm. quantum physics. The telling itself changes the story. Yeah. You know, it's like the observation of the event changes the event. The more we tell the story uh, in a way that we are able to maintain some level, both of engagement and objectivity about it, to be open and to learn to listen through the story is really helpful, I think. And I think that's part of why telling stories matters right now. It would be helpful just to tell stories, maybe in Congress, maybe, you know, uh, 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 at, in, at inaugurations. These are initiatory, cultural initiatory events. And so when we were in initiation, all the, all the old ways of coping, all the, uh, uh, all the old uh, coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms, and ways we have adapted before come back and they want their due again. And hopefully what, what, what we can do at, if we are growing, maturing in a process, all of the above and more, if we are evolving, if, if we are godding, mm -hmm. then we, we can look at all of that with some objectivity. And we can allow ourselves to be surprised and we can allow ourselves to listen in new ways. It's a good way of describing love, listening in new ways. Mm. Um, so, so that we can begin to see, okay, what is the basis for this? That doesn't mean we agree on everything, 
Quite the contrary, really. It means that we can hold something larger. Soul is always large enough to hold paradox and irrationality. It's always. Right. That's so that when we talk about the soul of a nation, <laughs> which both sides seem to want to claim as their own somehow, which is an oxymoron. That's not what soul is. It's not right. one particular uh, thing. It's paradoxical things. It's irrational as well as rational. So, you know, if we can claim that in initiation, if we can honor that in initiation, such as we're going through right now in terms of, oh my goodness, you know, mm -hmm. so many forces, pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, political power, uh, lack of political power, the, the uh, you know, the, the, the racist and privileged history that is embodied in this country. You know, we, we, we can... <laughs> You know, we can go on and on about the kinds of adaptations and everything that, that need to come up. If we can honor that, yeah, that's what this is about. And that it's asking for us to identify them more clearly, more quickly, and to become, to, to God, to create something. We decided to create a, a more perfect union that's it's an ongoing thing that so there's a lot of talk another uh, there's a shadow aspect of this there's a lot of talk yeah. about controlling the narrative <laughs> these days yeah. you yeah. know if we tell a story long enough regardless of its uh, you know its veracity or its falseness it becomes true or we, we accept it as true, the, we yeah, adhere the, to it. Yeah. And it may be a largely unconscious process. And it may be largely one dimensional. That is, it appeals to our affective self. That's often the case. It appeals to our fear or our passions or you know, what, the, what the old monks would call the desires, you know, um, those forces that are, that are within us. So it's an issue, and that's an issue for both the so-called, you know, socio-political religious right and the socio-political religious left. You know, yeah. we continue to play and adhere to both consciously and unconsciously these narratives. So I think mm -hmm. on the 22nd, you know, we're, we're going to gather, we're going to tell a story that addresses some of the narrative now at play in our nation and globally, because this is not simply a United States thing. There's, there's, right, other right. Fish, there's another level of the narrative going on there. But I, but I think the story has some bearing on what's going on. We're going to tell the story of Bluebeard, which is a 17th century French provincial story. And I'm fond of saying, well, it's sort of about the problem of suffering and the problem of evil that's a encapsulation. It's, it's, it's much more than that. Yeah. Uh, you know, without being overly revealing and overly secretive at the same time, it's a story that will assist us in looking at the individual and collective forces, both within us and outside of us, both historical and just in the nature of our being that are, are shaping our conflict right now and the story that we're trying to forge and where that might lead us. So I think there's some value in it in that regard. And my hope would be that the story kind of frees us up to see how our, 
current chaos is reflected in the past. And, you know, that the, the past might have uh, the story in and of itself might have something to tell us about uh, a way or maybe ways, not the way, but a way or the ways of, that we might have a more common and supportive and facilitative narrative. Yeah. That's yeah. my hope. Yeah. I mean, just to sort of summarize what, what I think you just said is it seems like we've got two opportunities before us. And one is to learn how to tell our shared story instead of our differentiating stories. Mm. And also the opportunity to explore and expose and heal our cultural shadow as well. Yeah. I think think story is a very, very powerful way to do that because, you know, smacking, smacking into the wall head on is uh, uh, not something that most people are willing to do, but we need to learn, we need to be with that shadow. I, I like that choice of word. I'm going to steal that from you. I like that choice of, of that archetype shadow better than evil or suffering. Uh, the, the shadow is simply a construct in the psyche and all of us have it. Uh, there's always um, um, a sort of dark or dense side to each of us, some more so than others. Yeah. So, yeah, this will be a story about working our individual and collective shadow and what the st- how the story might help us and how our interaction that evening might inform us about some things that we we weren't aware of before. Um, uh, and, and pass forward. Yeah. Yeah. So Phil, shifting gears a little bit, how did you become infatuated with story? Did you have a favorite story as a child or what's, uh, what's your personal love story with storytelling? Yeah, I like the word infatuated. That's good. That's good. But as my friend, the English guitarist Robert Fripp is fond of saying, it took you into its confidence. Mm, yeah. Yeah, because it's bigger than me story was in this world before I was, and it'll be here long after I'm gone. So yeah, so the particulars are like, you know, it's an early age, my parents, you know, read to me. And that was really my introduction, I think, to, you know, consciously to story. Um, You know, and it, it was both, you know, the story, and it was their attention, you know, their affection to me. That, that drew me into that, right? And so I'm really blessed in that regard, you know, because not, not everybody gets that. Right. And, and those stories too were, were really varied uh, in the sense that, you know, some were things like, like Aesop's fables, you know, or, or nursery rhymes, those kinds of things, you know. Uh, and then others were, you know, Cowboys and Indians, you know, both both of those terms are complete misnomers, but that's what they were. Yeah, that's what we yeah. would have called them back then. I know? guess that's an archetype, if not a <laughs> culturally well, and, sensitive uh, way of looking at things. But cowboys and Indians, finger quotes, is its own thing. Well, shouldn't that be, uh, you know, bull men and indigenous people? Or, well, yeah, I mean, you know? <laughs> we could say that in a lot more um, yeah. 
Well, and it ways. gets, you know, and it gets worse. I, I, I mean, you know, there were, there were light, there was light stuff like Dr. Seuss. I can remember the cat in the hat and all that. <laughs> he said, the cat in the hat and all that. That's where it's at. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, some of them were part of my indoctrination as a Southern white male, you know, I, that, you know, nobody walked into the room and said, okay, now we're going to, you know, indoctrinate you, you know, but, you know, and, and, you know, white is a, is a, is a really bad narrative. Yeah. There are no white people, you know? <laughs> yeah. But that, that white is a story, right? But, but that is a narrative and it's a narrative that was invented by white people. Sure. In order to, you know, we can go over the, <laughs> history at some point but but so i i heard those stories about like you know like uncle remus uh little black sambo all mm. the so you know there was uh, already then there was this um uh the the heavy part of storytelling and you know, storytelling can also be very frightening uh, the arts can be very frightening. Music can be very frightening. I have some people that just will not listen to trash death metal because it's scary and it's noisy and it's loud and it's, you know, uh, most people will tell me, you know, I don't read poetry because I don't understand it. And I, and I think for the most part, that's bullshit. I can say bullshit, can I? Sure. Can I say bullshit? Yeah. Oh, I've just said it three times. But the idea that there's only special people who can understand poetry, that's right. a story. That's a story. That's a narrative. Most people don't read poetry because it, 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 it disturbs them. It scares them. It puts them off. It's like, I don't understand what's going on or I don't like the way this is reaching. me. And or there, there, are other, <laughs> there are other narratives about that. So another, you ask about the infatuations and what, what, what got me Jones and about stories. You know, yeah. there, there, there's, of course, my own story, which, which has an interesting twist right from the beginning. I'm an adopted adult. I was, I was adopted at three months old. So, I, and I knew this as long as I could remember. It's always been a part of my story. There was never a time when it was like, oh, there's this discovery or something. Right. That wasn't the case. So... It, it, it was clear that my story was somewhat different from most other people's stories. I didn't know any other adopted people till I was in high school. So, and you know, that's a, that gives a, a different flavor. It, it talks about the particulars. It, it, for me, how that worked out was there was like, uh, I, I, there's this part of my life that's missing that other people seem to have. So it's kind of colored the way I've seen myself and the world in some ways, in some ways that are accurate, in some ways that are very inaccurate, you know? And then there, there are all these messages that come to you from outside about that, you know? Oh, you're special. That, it, that's such a, that's a, that's a horrible message to give to any child. <laughs> you're, you're special, you know? It's like, oh my God, you know, now what, you know? what? And, the, and there's also, there was a lot of shame-based stuff about, around that. So, and, and those feelings were, you know, like, you know, I'm an adult, articulate, I'm a 70-year-old adult articulating that now, as opposed to a 35-year-old adult, but let alone a child. There was just this sort of vague and insidious kind of feeling around this that something was different. 
and some of that was not pleasant. Some of that was dark. Some of it was okay. And so again, that I share that with you to talk about, you know, from a personal standpoint, what infatuated with me, the story really had me, you know, it's been a big identification in life. And so then the next thing that really happened about story was when I was 10, my fourth grade teacher, Frances Hufford, remember her name, Frances, uh, that's when we were introduced to poetry. And I loved it. I just, I immediately fell in love with, you know, the rhythm of it and the way it would, it, 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 it's, it said things that I couldn't say. I'd never thought of things that way, but yeah, that was it, you know? Yeah. So that, that was, that was, that was pretty powerful. And it, it reminded me about the same time, it would have been about 10 years old that I really started getting exposed to early rock and roll which was basically, you know, two and a half, three minute stories. You know, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You know, the car <laughs> going over the hill and I saw Maybelline in her Coupe de Ville. You know, it, they're basically these little stories, you know. That's true. So, so uh, all of that was kind of going on. Then as a teenager, I really got into mythology. You know, while everybody else was into sports and <laughs> I, I was into the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses and, you know, those stories, I just, I was attracted to the timeless quality of them. I just felt like there was yeah. something eternal and informative, Dr. Ewan would say, archetypal going on there that, that appealed to me both intellectually and emotionally. It was just there for me. And then in seminary, I got exposed to Jungian uh, psychology and psychotherapy, which you know, a lot of the unions were have always been, you know, just infatuated with fables and fairy that's what makes us unions. <laughs> and mythology, because that's part of the gig. And I'd say the last thing was really that in terms of forming what's happened with me in the late 80s, early 90s, I can't remember exactly when it was. I went to a large men's gathering uh, in Atlanta, at the World Congress Center with Robert Bly, the poet, mm -hmm. and Michael Mead, the mythologist mm -hmm. from Washington State, whom I've stolen a lot of, well, I've stolen from all these guys, and uh, <laughs> Coleman Barks, uh, retired UGA English professor who's the world's foremost interpreter of Rumi. And, uh, you know, I was just taken in by the way we kind of told a story that day, a loose group of, you know, five, 600 men. It was a big group. And uh, how we kind of came together and learned to make music together and reacted to a story together and told some stories about our own lives together. And that was a profound thing. It was helping to shape in a new way, um, you know, both uh, how I perceived what that vocation was about, but also about my own sort of love for uh, story. Yeah. And if anybody was going to turn anybody on to it, that would be those guys. Those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any particular favorite story or favorite character that shows up in more than one story? Oh, that's, that, that's so great. Yeah. We could go on forever about that. Uh, you know, interestingly, I, 
that I, two two stories that hopefully I'll get to tell later this year. Um, we'll see how this goes. We'll see what happens. <laughs> but one is the fisherman in the Inuit story of Skeleton Woman, oh, yeah. which is um, I just love this guy because he's 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 passionate and he's excited and he's scared and he's vulnerable and he's transformed in the story. And uh, I've just, I've, I find him a fascinating character. Um, another one that I hope to get to share later this year is uh, a story that I've stolen from a professor of patristics at um, Villanova University, uh, Dr. Martin Laird, father, Dr. Martin Laird. Uh, called uh, the story is called a tale of monastic failure, and it's about a a monk and his his journey through the through the monastery. Um, uh, but I really identify with his his seeking and the place that he arrives uh, at to dangle my participle. Uh, <laughs> And, I, and, you know, when you ask me that question, you know who comes to me is the person that comes to me is Batman. Yeah. Big comic book geek when I was a kid. And I always liked the guy because, you know, he was complex. He was conflicted. He was he, he was always wrestling with with suffering, both his and and and, and others. And, uh, and and that's what made him what he what he was, and I, yeah. I found that um, I, I just I've always been fascinated with that with that guy. You know who who are you? I'm Batman. You know it. Just, you know there's just something about that um, that character, and I think it was because he was a superhero, but he had no superpowers. That was right. The, he was he was just fully a, human. <laughs> he was just fully human, and also larger than human. Yeah. Larger than human. And, you know, the, the one person in story that persistently sort of engages and challenges me and, uh, you know, wrestles with me and informs me and transforms me is probably Jesus. That's the story that really uh, I come back to over and over and over again. Uh, to engage with and just, yeah, some of those ways, getting some information, wrestling with, being challenged, being comforted, yeah. uh, all the above and so much more, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, Phil, we are very, very much looking forward to seeing you on Friday the 22nd, but also to an ongoing relationship with you as our storyteller in residence. And uh, I would just really invite folks out to come listen if you can. And if for whatever reason, you're not able to make it on that evening, we will have uh, the videotape available and the audio available as a podcast. So um, people will be able to uh, listen to your story, Phil. And we look forward to this and so many more. Any closing words, anything that you would want people to remember as they listen to stories? Yeah, well, I think as, as we prepare to come together on the 22nd, I, I'd like for people to, 
just come as you are, as it were, and, and, and be open to the possibility of uh, entering the story uh, with the teller, with me, and, and knowing that there's no really right, right way to do that. Just mm. the way you're going to do that is the right way. And it's in the telling of the story and the impact it has on you and We'll talk some more at that time about, you know, uh, signposts and, and road markers and things to look for during the story. But I just I just hope people will come um, openly and and looking to uh, engage with our friend Bluebeard. Yeah. Now, an, one last question about the story itself. We are saying that the event is family friendly, but Bluebeard has some elements that might not be good for young children. What, what are your thoughts or advice on, on uh, parents as they're choosing whether or not to include their kids in this event? Yeah, well, there are two pieces there. One is the story itself, which is probably PG-13. Um, that it, uh, it's, it, it, there is some violence in it. Um, most stories have some level of violence in them. Because uh, that that's seems a good one. chief problem is violence, uh, and why I'm laughing, I'm not quite sure. Other than sometimes that's all you can do. Um, so yeah, I, I would say uh, the other piece would be, of course, we, we have to remind the teller to use his PG-13 language and not to say anything. I generally don't say anything really rough with this particular story. Okay. And, and also just as a reminder that what, what we're calling the event is a storytelling camp in instead of camp out. We're wanting to recreate this sense of being around a bonfire mm. and listening to our, our storyteller and uh, being in community. And so there will be, as you said, we'll do some conversation afterwards. We'll unpack it a little bit. Uh, we'll talk about sort of larger archetypal themes, but also how people connect personally and, and how they engage. And so we're encouraging people to have a nice mug of cocoa or a glass of hot tea and to think of this as um, a bonfire camping sort of experience uh, to the best that we can make it happen on Zoom. Sounds great. I'm Thanks there. so much. Thanks so much, Phil, for your time here today and uh, for your time telling us stories and for everything else that you do. You're such a wonderful part of our community and I really, really appreciate you in so many ways. Oh, thank you. I love you too.